The views expressed in this program are those of the participants. As you know, my work has been banned and my books have been burned in 27 major countries and 14 newly emergent nations. Why are they afraid of me? One asks oneself, why? Because I celebrate the virtue, the beauty, the wonder, the ultimate ineffable desire of the ecstasy of the human spirit. Oh, Dulcis, Imperatrix, whatever that may mean. My poems are as innocent as children, young, innocent, because only children will understand the freedom and the virtue of giving oneself without restraint, uninhibitedly unashamed. I wonder how many of us here have this gift for sacrifice. I sense there may be some, perhaps 10 or 20, three or four, perhaps only one. Welcome everyone, it is Thursday, December the 6th, 2018. I'm Bob Metz, and this is Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. Join us for an hour of discussion that's not right-wing, it's Just Right. Fade into color, color into black and white, under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. The morality of sacrifice and altruism is the most destructive force to individuals in society, argued philosopher-novelist Ayn Rand pretty much throughout all of her works. And you know something? She is continually proven right. I'll be suggesting to you today that the morality of altruism is a leading cause of the outright irrationality that we're witnessing more and more around us. Irrationality and its connection to altruism and sacrifice is our show theme today, which begins right after we remind you to write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org, subscribe to Just Right on iTunes, and follow us on SoundCloud. Hear us on WBCQ and on Channel 292 Shortwave, Visit us at www.justrightmedia.org, where you can access all of Just Right's social media links and, of course, all of our archived broadcasts. After listening to more and more of the discussions I hear being engaged in by various podcasters, bloggers, and YouTubers, it's remarkable how so many of the issues that they're still struggling with were so clearly addressed and, and, and answered by philosopher-novelist Ayn Rand. I mean, Rand nailed the essentials every time. And Robert Vaughn repeatedly keeps reminding me of this fact when we discuss what we're hearing on all of these podcasts. Why don't they just pick up an Ayn Rand book and read these three paragraphs in chapter so-and-so, you know? <laughs> Given the base of their interests, it's almost spooky how so many people on the right do not ever refer to Ayn Rand. You don't have to agree with her, but one thing's for sure. The discussion will be propelled forward well beyond the point at which is generally taking place today. Now, on the show two weeks ago, I reviewed the essential ideas behind Ayn Rand's virtue of selfishness, distinguishing 
rational self-interest from what was being called selfishness. And as I was considering the implication of Rand's contention that the morality of altruism made morality itself an enemy of those who are supposed to be moral, a lot of things started striking me. Her argument was that if the standard or value of a moral action was always to be judged by the fact that the beneficiary of the action was someone other than the agent of the action, which is the case under altruistic morality, then, quote, the first thing man learns is that morality is his enemy. He has nothing to gain from it. He can only lose, end quote. Now think about that for a moment. Consider the implications if someone was constantly operating on a morality that inflicted loss and pain on the moral agent, or if every time you behaved morally, quote-unquote, the beneficiary of your actions was always someone else and not you, well, after a period of time, how could you not begin to suffer from some form of irreversible irrationality through and through, or even, dare I suggest it, some form of mental dysfunction? Sure enough, as I reviewed the other topics and essays in Rand's Virtue of Selfishness, each chapter practically defined all of the major issues that we're talking about today. Mental health versus mysticism and self-sacrifice, name of one of her chapters. How does one lead a rational life in an irrational society? Racism, collectivized ethics, and a whole lot more. It's all there. And all of the stuff that we hear the big-name social media pundits of the right talking about is all in this one little thin 140-some-odd-page book by Ayn Rand. Yet rarely do I hear any of the major social media personalities refer to her works. But it's still fun to follow and hear them arrive at many of the right conclusions in their own various ways, even though solutions are often elusive and frustrating. So since irrationality is our theme today, perhaps we had best begin with some definitions. This is from my Funk and Wagnalls, irrational, quote, incapable of exercising the power of reason and too contrary to reason or absurd, end quote. Well, already <laughs> I disagree with this definition's use of the word incapable. Any person or thing incapable of exercising the power of reason cannot be irrational, since it also can't be rational. I mean, a cat or a dog is incapable of exercising the power of reason, but we don't go around talking about cats and dogs as being irrational, do we? The same applies to a truly mentally ill person. We do not refer to the mentally handicapped as being irrational, simply because they cannot be rational. That's how that word works. Because if behaving rationally isn't an option, then the word irrational becomes meaningless. It's an anti-concept. You can't take this binary option between rational or irrational and then just eliminate half of the contrasting concept from its opposite and still expect that word to have any objective meaning. That's an epistemological error, I think. But to define irrational as contrary to reason or absurd is more accurate, since that definition reflects the thing that irrationality is in opposition to. Now this leads us to an inescapable fact, that being rational or irrational is ultimately an act of choice. As explains Ayn Rand, quote, Man's basic vice. The source of all his evils is the act of unfocusing his mind, the suspension of his consciousness, which is not blindness, but the refusal to see, not ignorance, but the refusal to know. Irrationality is the rejection of man's means of survival, and therefore a commitment 
to a course of blind destruction, that which is anti-mind and anti-life. The irrational is the impossible. It is that which contradicts the facts of a reality. Facts cannot be altered by a wish, but they can destroy the wisher." End quote. Now, how does all this relate to altruism and sacrifice? Well, in our show opener, <laughs> the cult figure, Mac Fisto, played by Richard Burton in the 1968 cult movie Candy, which we'll talk about a little later, calls upon his adoring audience to commit themselves to a life of sacrifice. And, of course, sacrifice is what is at the heart of altruism, an altruistic morality, which is the essential morality, quote-unquote, of the left. Now, I would venture to think that most people look at altruism as charity. I hear it all the time. But if you pick up a dictionary, you'll find that altruism means, quote, selfless devotion to the welfare of others, end quote. Now, that's not charity. That is activism. That's a moral or political cause that is far from anything that could be called selfless. But the idea of selfless devotion to the welfare of others is a philosophy, or what most might see as a moral code of behavior. Altruism is not charity or kindness. And as a moral code, altruism is the exact opposite. But because it sounds like charity and kindness, and that's how most people look at it, the left uses the false association to do what we have come to call virtue signaling. Because Rand makes it clear that in order for something to truly be a sacrifice, a greater value must be abandoned or sacrificed to a lesser value or for nothing. And now that's a sacrifice. What is the moral code of altruism, asked Ayn Rand? And of course, she answered it, quote, The basic principle of altruism is that man has no right to exist for his own sake. That service to others is the only justification for his existence, and that self-sacrifice is his highest moral duty, virtue, and value. And she warns again, Do not confuse altruism with kindness, goodwill, or respect for the rights of others. These are not primaries, but consequences, which in fact... Altruism makes impossible. The irreducible primary of altruism, the basic absolute, is self-sacrifice, which means self-immolation, self-abrogation, self-denial, self-destruction, which means, and this is important, the self as the standard of evil, the selfless as the standard of good. That's the world we live in today, and it's completely backwards. So over the course of our show today, we'll be hearing the voices of Gad Sad, Pete Bogosian, Dave Rubin, Ben Shapiro, Jordan Peterson, Bill Whittle, Scott Ott, Steve Green, among others, as they discuss some of their observations and frustrations in dealing with the irrationality of the left. So let's begin our journey with a true story about irrationality that was recently discussed on a November 20th podcast of Gad Sad on his show, The Sad Truth, <laughs> when he featured Pete Bogosian, an American philosopher who is assistant professor of philosophy at Portland State University. His primary research areas are critical thinking, philosophy of education, and moral reasoning. And recently, he made news for reasons that we'll hear about right now. So maybe you could first begin by telling us what the story is, and then we'll drill down into the details. Okay, so a few years ago we published a piece in a non-ranked journal, a new journal, Cogent Social Scientists, called The Conceptual Penis as a Social Construct. 
And I, I thought it was very funny, but I'll let <laughs> I'll, among other things we argue that penises cause climate change. But I'll let people read that. And <laughs> sorry, sorry. I mean, you know, you you're on point. When you could make the master of sire, a satire crack up, you're doing a good job. Well done, Pete. And I, well, the amazing thing for that is some of these people have no sense of humor. They didn't even think it was funny. But we 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 did we wrote that piece because as, as funny as it is, and you know. There's something more serious under the surface, and that we both, at the time, I think, we subscribed to the Twitter feed New Peer, New Real Peer Review, and we just couldn't believe the nonsense that was coming out of these these journals. I mean, it was just flabbergasting. I, we originally came up with an idea that potatoes were sexist, and we looked, we Googled it, and there's a bunch of stuff on potatoes being sexist, and so we said we couldn't do that, and so then we. We kind of so throughout this whole project, we would just continue to talk on the phone and share ideas. I'm just laughing at the potatoes. <laughs> Go on, I'm gonna gain my composure. <laughs> so that's the conceptual penis. See, I, we tried to make this even crazier than the stuff they had come up with, which is that talk about challenging. It wasn't coming up with the ideas; it was trying to do something more lunatic, utterly insane than what was already existing. So. Uh, so that paper was honored for exemplary scholarship, by the way, by the journal. And not only that, we knew how to write these papers now. We knew what the moral line was. We knew what was morally fashionable. And the data and all of the arguments are all irrelevant as long as you hit the more, what's morally fashionable. Whites bad, men bad, heterosexuality bad, everything is a problem, everybody's being raped, there's a catastrophe everywhere. No, the a total, absolute, radical, unequivocal biology denialism, all of this stuff. Like, so once you know the formula, boom, right in. Our academies are in crisis. Um, I, I know that I'm talking a lot, but I, I have, feel like I have a lot to say. All so. Okay, so I, I really think it's important, especially with you in this conversation, to say something. I feel that dialogue has failed, and I'm going to give you my points of evidence, if I may. Sure. Okay. When we hosted the James Damore event at Portland State University, we invited the, I think the Women's Studies Department at Portland State University has five faculty members. We invited them not for a debate. The email was very specific and it said a, I think it was a spirited conversation, but it wasn't a debate. And uh, they did not join us. It would have been James Damore and myself on stage with whoever is many members of the women's studies department who wanted to attend. They didn't show up. Then we invited them, excuse me, publicly, again we invited them two days later to an event at Portland State University with James Lindsay, Helen Pluckrose, and myself to have a spirited conversation or debate if they wanted um, about issues in the field of gender studies and the fact that the peer review process in gender studies doesn't do what they think it does and it needs some it needs a corrective mechanism they did not show up okay I was told I will I, I was told that if I did it again if I invited them my colleagues these are not undergraduates in fact we didn't even invite non-tenured track faculty to have the, to go on stage with James Moore and myself or uh, or uh, James Lindsay and Helen Pluckrose because not only did I not want to be seen as punching down but I wanted to have an honest conversation about what the problems were well then I got invited to James Lindsay and Clay Rutledge 
and myself, we got invited to MythCon in Milwaukee, the Mythicist Milwaukee. And my original idea was, okay, I can't, we can't say debate because no, nobody's there, nobody at PSU, the whole idea of debate isn't going to go. But now I want to debate. I want to debate these folks. I want to debate the legitimacy of certain uh, methods of knowledge production within these fields. So I called, so I knew I was going to be on this show, so I called the organizer to confirm what he told me, and I have confirmation of it, and I can send you that, or you can call him yourself if, if this is, what I'm going to say is rather unbelievable, which it is unbelievable, until you know why it's unbelievable. They told me they spent 80 hours, six people spent 80 hours, eight zero emailing and contacting and trying to find a single professor of gender studies in the United States who would come on stage to debate us. And they couldn't. Let that sink in. Wow. So what, what let, is it? Let that sink in. Could you imagine any other field if you did that? Physics, math. You don't even need a hard science. Psychology. So there within these disciplines they don't value the tradition from Socrates to Habermas they don't value discourse they don't value dialogue they don't value they are naked activists and it's on their webpage repeatedly and I can send you something for your audience just google gender studies and various departments and they're activists they don't want dialogue they don't want to talk they are religious fundamentalists and that they're absolutely convinced that they have the truth so they don't seek it think that most of the intellectual terrorists in the deep recesses of their minds when they're about to lay down to sleep truly believe the BS that they peddle or do you think that they don't but their quest for their activism allows them to engage in self-deception what's your gut feeling telling you that is a great question so having studied critical thinking for I don't know, my whole life, professional life, more than a quarter of a century, and written and thought about publishing. Here's the conclusion I've come to. The number one thing that derails critical thinking is when somebody's moral mind overrides their rational mind. And so that statement needs to be unpacked a bit. But it's when people's moral motivation will override any consideration for what is the evidence, how could my belief be false, and what's happening is that, that I do believe that these folks believe this, and to borrow Dan Dennett's idea, this is because of belief and belief. They have the belief that if they have this, these beliefs, they'll be better people. Right. And so, I think it's a case of, as Steven Pinker says, you're, it's not because they're immoral, it's because they're the moral modules in their brain, although he doesn't use the word modules, they are hyperactive. So they're hypermoral. And that is the nature of the problem. And that is why they're incapable of taking an objective or even reasonably distanced look at this and coming to making a, not even a discerning judgment, but any kind of a judgment about their field in general because they're so morally motivated for things that they ought to be morally motivated for. Racial justice, equality, not equity. 
the, the things that they should be motivated for, but they're not. So I think it's a case of, yes, they do believe it, and it's because their moral minds are overriding their rational minds. See, I, 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 I somewhat buy what you're saying, but I'm a bit more cynical. I think that okay. if, if I could, if I were able to truly dig to the depth of their soul, I'd be able to extract that they don't believe it, but they are consequentialists. So one of the things that I talk about in, in my forthcoming book is this, and of course, as a philosopher, you, you know this dichotomy very well: the difference between you know deontological systems and consequentialist systems. Right. Now, the way that I would apply it here, typically we we, we talk about these things in terms of say lying, right? Uh, is it ever okay to lie, or is it never okay to lie, right? And so you could either have a deontological or a consequentialist perspective. Well, I argue that the way that they engage truth is really what defines. Uh, their positions here. So if you're a deontolog uh, deontologically oriented person when it comes to truth, then you think there is absolutely no context where it is appropriate to injure the truth in the pursuit of something else. When you are a consequentialist, then you say, if I have to damage truth, if the building has to fall in the pursuit of a greater thing called activism, justice, and so on, then so be it. What do you think of that theory? I think it's interesting. Um, maybe you're not going to like what I'm going to say, but I'm going to say it anyway because we have a relationship with being forthright in our speech. I think that you're a smart guy, and I think that the fact that you're a smart guy hinders your um, ability to think through this, and here's why. You are a very intelligent guy, and the problem with most people who are very intelligent is that they think to themselves, well, this is how... I would think about it. Now, you and I are, I would assume you're a deontologist for the truth. Of course. Yes, I am as well. So I think that you have, and I don't mean to be condescending to these people. I, I really don't. It's going to sound that way. But I think that you have articulated a way of thinking that is utterly elusive to them and, and significantly beyond their boundary of what they're capable of understanding conceptually. And I think the problem with smart people is they do that. They kind of... You know, they say, well, if someone just had this data point, they'd change their mind. Well, no, actually, no, because they don't form their mind on the basis of data points to begin with, so giving them 500 data points to support it isn't going to do any good. So I think that you've articulated something which is well beyond the grasp of the people who believe this nonsense. I mean, they believe that the rape, the epicenter canine, you know, there are epicenters of canine rape culture, petri dishes. So anybody who's going to believe that couldn't possibly take on what you just articulated. P people do that, and not because you know you're intelligent or someone else is intelligent, but we tend to think we tend to give people more credit than they're due intellectually because you and I will work through problems, or people will work through problems, and we'll assume that other people will work through those problems. But that's not necessarily true. It could just be that they have a hyper their their moral mind is hyper is hyperactive and they're engaged in a very unsophisticated form of confirmation bias. Right. So then they just latch on to things in their moral and epistemological landscape that buttress what they already believe. Right. And I think that's exactly what's happening. That's why the threat to the peer review process is is so cataclysmic to them, because their whole worldview is built off of this stuff. But all of it. Pete Bogosian's assessment of the irrational intellectuals is a bit pessimistic, to say the least, when he says, you know, most people who are intelligent think to themselves, this is how I would think things through, 
but that's utterly elusive to all these people, and it's beyond their boundary of understanding conceptually. Well, yes, there are stupid people, no question. But I happen to agree with Gad Sad's take on this one. I don't really believe that the irrational intellectuals, supposedly not stupid people, actually believe their own BS. And you can certainly argue that dialogue has failed, but there hasn't even been a dialogue to fail. The reason that there is no dialogue is because the fundamentalists are doing everything they can to avoid moral or critical judgment of their beliefs. And they are intelligent enough to know that any such judgment would destroy them. If they thought they could win the argument, they would show up. Boghossian points out that religious fundamentalists, you know, are activists convinced that they have the truth so they don't seek it. <laughs> well, I don't think that's exactly what's happening. It's not that they're not seeking the truth. What they're doing is actually avoiding the challenges to their truth, to their beliefs. And truth is not what they are convinced that they have. I think they know that their so-called truth is BS, as Gads had pointed out. When Boghossian points out that their moral mind overrides their rational mind and derails critical thinking, and he says that they're not immoral but hypermoral, I think that's totally incorrect. No, no, no. They are being immoral. One is not moral simply based on one's feelings or intentions or beliefs divorced from reality. That's the very definition of immorality. And it is immoral because it has been chosen by those who believe or practice it. If I may paraphrase the late Ricardo Montalbán's comments about his role as Khan in Star Trek's Wrath of Khan, you remember that one? And he said something to the effect of saying that every villain sees himself as the good guy. Evil people don't go around thinking of themselves as the bad guys. They think they're the good guys. And when he played that role of Khan in that Star Trek movie, he had to put himself in that position mentally, that he was the good guy, and Captain Kirk and the rest of them were the bad guys. If anyone sees the, quote, moral mind as being separate from the rational mind, then I'm really not sure what they accept as morality itself. Anything that is irrational, in the context we're talking about, is also immoral. I think that the essence of the problem was best identified when Boghossian referred to what he called a belief in belief. Now, a belief in belief is a perfect way of describing what we have been calling the primacy of consciousness on this show, something we've been talking about since we started doing Just Right. Now, for a rational person, it's almost impossible to conceive that people actually do go around believing that reality conforms to their beliefs <laughs> rather than the other way around. But it is the left's epistemological view of metaphysics, if that's the right way of saying it, the primacy of consciousness. And of course, the opposite and correct view, the correct premise, is the primacy of existence. Now, Rand points out that she uses the word metaphysical to mean that which pertains to reality, to the nature of things, to existence itself. And Leonard Peikoff, her intellectual heir, explains, quote, by the metaphysically given, we mean any fact inherent in reality as such. As soon as you say about a metaphysically given fact, it is just that much. The whole objectivist metaphysics is implicit. If the fact is, it is what it is, and that's the law of identity. It is what it is, independent of consciousness. 
and it is lawful, inherent in the identities of the relevant entities, and that's the law of causality. Given the circumstances involved, such a fact is necessary. It had to be. Any alternative would have entailed a contradiction. In short, once you say about a metaphysical fact, it is, that means that within the relevant circumstance, it is immutable, inexorable, inescapable, absolute, meaning necessitated by the nature of existence. The attempt to alter the nature of the metaphysically given is described by Ayn Rand as the fallacy of rewriting reality, or often we say rewriting history, right? But if the possibility of failure exists, then it necessarily exists. Anyone who holds the full context, who keeps in mind the identity of all the relevant entities, would be unable to even imagine an alternative to the facts as they are. The contradictions involved in such a projection would obliterate it. The rewriters, however, do not keep identity in mind. They specialize in out-of-context pining for a heaven that is the antonym of the metaphysically given, end quote. Now, of course, the metaphysically given also applies to the past, as I pointed out on the show, in the past. <laughs> not in the sense that the past exists as the past, but that the consequences of past events in the present have been determined for us. This touches on the whole free will and determinism discussion, which we won't get into today. But this, again, is why the left always seeks to rewrite or ignore history. The primacy of consciousness is the philosophical way to describe the thinking of people divorced from reality. For them, reality is what they believe it to be. Consciousness, uber existence. On the right, we have the primacy of existence. And even the right wing, you know, with all its variants and faults, and even with exceptions to this rule, the primacy of existence still holds sway, which is why all possible political and philosophical debates can only exist on the right, an observation we've been making since day one. That includes the conservatives, yes. <laughs> now, reality and facts are irrelevant to the mind that operates on the primacy of consciousness. It is a form of mental illness, though not recognized as such because it's not caused by a physical ailment, you know. Ayn Rand used to point out how psychology does not regard the subject of mental health morally, but only medically, from the aspect of health being, you know, a malfunction with cognitive competence as the proper standard of health. So if you compare the human mind, say, to a computer, you might say that the computer itself is functioning as it should, as a healthy body, but that the corrupt programming is malfunctioning, creating a sick or corrupt mind. Therefore, no matter how healthy the body, when you put garbage in, you get garbage out. And it's the same with people. Language and concepts are the means by which we program the human mind. And if the language and concepts do not relate to reality or are unable to be processed by logic, just as with any computer, you will get gibberish coming out, at the, out of the end process. And worse, irrationality. And worse, a form of mental dysfunction, if not outright illness. But unlike a human being, a computer or a machine is incapable of being irrational, so we don't refer to them that way. You know, my computer's behaving irrationally today. No. <laughs> my computer can't be rational, even when it is working properly. <laughs> Irrationality presupposes the potential to be rational, and that requires thinking. 
and thinking requires abstraction and concepts. And most important of all, to think is a choice. Were it not, we could not be considered irrational under any conditions. But because it is so, because irrationality is, in the end, the consequence of a choice not to think, that irrationality itself is synonymous with evil. Animals, machines, and human beings, when they are physically unable to reason, as with true mental illness, cannot be held morally accountable because informed choice is not an option to them. They are inherently incapable of exercising it. Which brings us back to the beginning of our show today. If you recall, today's show opener comes from a movie that for years I've had on my back burner with the intention of doing a movie review about the worst movies I've seen in all time. But in light of what's been going on in the real world today, I'm reconsidering my original judgment, not in terms of a movie review, but in terms of a true life review. And the movie was called Candy and was produced in 1968. And I'm glad I procrastinated long enough not to do my movie review because my opinion on that worst movie of all time has done kind of an about-face in the light, or should I say in the darkness, of the level of irrationality that's consuming so much of the Western world's inhabitants. Wikipedia described Candy as a 1968 sex farce film directed by Christian Mark Kahn based on the 1958 novel by Terry Southern and Mason Hoffenberg from a screenplay by Buck Henry, who, by the way, cameos as a mental patient in the movie. And the film satirizes pornographic stories through the adventures of its naive heroine, Candy, played by Ewa Allen. And get a load of this all-star cast. It stars Marlon Brando, Richard Burton, James Coburn, Walter Matthau, Ringo Starr, yes, of the Beatles, John Huston, John Astin, Elsa Martinelli, and Enrico Maria Salerno, popular figures such as Sugar Ray Robinson, Anita Pallenberg. Candy was one of the many psychedelic movies that appeared as the 60s ended. The film opened to a mixed box office, but later became a cult classic. It was the 18th highest grossing film of 1968. It was the 12th most popular movie at the UK box office in 1969. So you can get the idea of how popular this film was. Now personally, I think the attraction of the film was due to its all-star cast. And while Wikipedia legitimately describes the plot of the film in terms of satire of pornographic stories, the movie's overriding theme, total irrationality, is an irrationality that now manifests itself on our university and college campuses across the continent. And if you want proof of that, well then just listen to this. Here again is Gad Sad, this time from our own Just Right YouTube production earlier this year, who literally describes the kind of irrationality that is consuming our educational institution and which was a constant and consistent theme of the movie Candy. Who says... Art doesn't imitate reality. A, a question. What's driving this? As a psychologist and sex researcher, I often use the metaphor of fetish. The reactions to established knowledge, uh, epistemology, methodology, conversations such as the ones we're having, uh, correspond to the characteristics of a fetish reaction to a fetish object. They're highly selective, they're uncontrollable, and they're exaggerated. Um, and I see people you know, who are making the uh, pronouncements that we're talking about, the anti-scientism, the uh, postmodernism, et cetera, 
I think the dynamic is some kind of nearly orgasmic pleasure. Um, the condemning, the condemning uh, of an established knowledge somehow confers virtue on the individual uh, and, and pleasure. What, what do you think the dynamic is? Where, yeah, that's that's a great from? question. I guess I'll be talking about some of this stuff Where in my book. Yeah, let me, let me go back to that slide. Why does it feel so good? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I, don't, I don't think there's a singular explanation. I think it's a, it's a cocktail of, of different pathologies. So, for example, when it comes to the victimology mentality, uh, I, I've coined the term or the malady collective Munchausen or collective Munchausen by proxy, right? So for those of you who don't know, uh, Munchausen syndrome is a psychiatric disorder whereby someone feigns a medical illness so that they can garner sympathy and empathy. Munchausen syndrome by proxy is when you take someone who's under your care, typically your biological child, but it could be a pet, it could be an elderly parent, and you harm them so that then you can get the pleasure of the empathy and the sympathy by proxy. Well, when I see the victimology, right, it's not I think, therefore I am, it's I'm a victim, therefore I am. So there's a form of collective Munchausen whereby the main currency now is I get my strokes, my, my pleasure through being a victim, either myself, or by proxy, I'm the social justice warrior who's helping those poor victims. So that would be that would explain uh, the victimology mentality. The postmodernism, I actually think I have a not nearly as sort of psychoanalytic explanation as yours. So Jacques Derrida, Michel Foucault, and Jacques Lacan, and the rest of the French postmodernist scammers, I think simply stumbled on a way to get tons of people to actually show up and in complete reverence, listen to their complete random gibberish and take them seriously. And as someone who studies peacocking behavior, I can peacock by buying an Aston Martin, I can peacock by getting Harvard degrees, or I can peacock, if you'll give me the opportunity, of standing up in front of adoring undergrads and saying that the transposed eigenvalue of my inner self, right? And all the rest of the bullshit. And there's a bunch of people who think that because I'm engaging in what appears to be pseudo-profundity, I must be saying something important, and I get all the hot women on campus. So I think it's really as simple as that. They found an arbitrage profit to use an MBA, right? They found a way to be worthy in the ecosystem. Why do the chemists, sorry? Well, no, I think it's, why are the chemists and the physicists and the biologists getting all the attention? We also are important in the humanities, right? But it has to be something as impenetrable as what the mathematician is doing and what the physicist is doing, right? And the way I achieve that is instead of using mathematical symbols, I use impenetrable, complete random prose. There must be some profundity to it. Ms. Quimby, just exactly who is this McFisto person? Don't you know who McFisto is? I'm surprised at you, Mr. Christian. Don't you read poetry? I don't have time for poetry. I'm in the social sciences, not the humanities. Well, after all, he's one of the best-known poets of the 20th century. I gobbled up the mountains, ate the sky, and drank the sea until I was the universe. The universe was me. 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 <laughs>
Life which burned and bled in the triumph of my dream dim days, where I stood steaming brightly in the sleep-spun, sight-stunned glimmer of that eagle-crested dream, thrust through the drafty tongue-tied paws of those whose tender envelope of word-washed flesh, flinging that nameless, bitter, tear-stripped cry to the ice-green, wind-whipped, strawberry passion of my fractured spleens, old, lymph-drained, liquid, Rust. The poem that I've just recited to you was composed in a hospital in Burma as I lay close to death having been savagely beaten by a, a horde of outraged Belgian tourists. You will find this poem in my collected verse entitled Forests of Flesh. It has not yet been published in this country, but you can get a privately edited edition. It's signed personally by the author, <laughs> who is me, three dollars either in cash or money order to Mac Fister, Box 2723, Leamington, New Jersey. Mac Fister, Box 2723, Leamington, New Jersey. I would also like to express my thanks to the Rolling Stone, uh, the Rolling, uh, Rolling Fields Center High School Student Committee Advisory Board, who had the courage, and may I say, the wisdom to invite me here. You're listening to Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. So did that scene from Candy <laughs> sound exactly like what Gad Sad described, or what? And I remember exactly when I was video recording Gad up at Western University, and I heard him describe exactly the character that MacFisto was in Candy. It's just perfect. It's all BS. He was right, and it's, it sounded exactly like that. Now the person who asked Gad Sad a question described himself as a psychologist and sex researcher, and he referred to the collective irrationalism using the metaphor of a fetish reaction, referring to an almost orgasmic pleasure. This again is exactly what was going on in the film Candy throughout, from the irrationality all the way through to the orgasmic pleasure. And you know, there's an inherent contradiction in the altruist moral code. We've talked about this before. Think about this. It bestows all of the moral recognition to the altruist, and it ignores the moral status of the recipient. If it is moral to give and to sacrifice, then what of the morality of the individual who benefits from this sacrifice? 
isn't it that person's moral duty to sacrifice as well? And if we're all sacrificing to each other, at what point is it okay to be the beneficiary? You always have to be in abject need? You have to be in the starvation position? That's exactly how the left thinks about the whole issue. And that's where it's all heading. It'll just keep going in that direction. So let us now turn our attention from the problem to some possible solutions. What can be done about these ominous and sinister trends? And whose responsibility is it to take action? Of course, Ayn Rand's message was that mankind has to adopt an objective philosophy, one that reflects not opposes the nature of reality and the efficacy of reason and the nature of mankind itself. People need an objective set of values on which to act and to think. That's what she always taught. And Rand understood that to teach a philosophy, it is important to tell a story first. And with that, she wrote books like We the Living, The Fountainhead, and of course, the infamous Atlas Shrugged. And remarkably, her nonfiction books, like The Virtue of Selfishness and Capitalism, The Unknown Ideal, were actually written as footnotes to her fiction works, particularly Atlas Shrugged. And of course, another person who has been spreading a similar message of sorts about stories and teaching of values has been Jordan Peterson, who with Ben Shapiro last Friday, November 30th, appeared on the Rubin Report with Dave Rubin. Let's listen into a bit of that. Your philosophy, Jordan, is self-sustaining to a group of people who are looking at, re at the values they live and saying, where did these come from and how do I justify these values? But I think that it would be very difficult to teach child values before you teach the myth. So I think that right. you're, you're coming at people and saying to them, your values can be justified by the myth. Yeah. But when you're teaching a child values, it's a myth. You have it's to teach. You have to keep, teach the kids the story first, of course, and then come the values. Yes. And so, the, and so, there's a difference between. And this is they why, won't even listen unless you teach the story exactly. first. Exactly. Yeah. And this is why, as a religious person, I teach my kids the stories first because this, the values are embedded in the stories. Uh, and whether you call it myth or history, as long as you believe the reality of myth, and you and I believe in reality in different ways, mm -hmm. and this is part of the fundamental distinction. The, the, the strange thing is too with these mythological stories is that, like, there are forms of abstraction that are more true than, than what they're abstracted from, right? My mathematics is like that. And here's a kind of truth. This is literary truth. And it's true is that, well, this happened and this happened and this happened and this happened. And there was a pattern about what happened. Let's call that the heroic pattern for lack of a better word. And so the question is, well, what's the reality? Is the reality the specifics of what happened mm -hmm. in each person's individual life, or is it the general pattern that manifested itself across all those people? And I would say, if you want to extract out guidelines for proper living, then the reality is the abstraction that's, that's, that's pulled out of the multiple stories. And if you don't think that abstractions are true, then you're not thinking, because you can easily make a case that a proper abstraction is more real than the thing from which it's abstracted. When I was studying totalitarianism, I realized that it was the abdication of individual responsibility in the final analysis that led to the horrors of Nazi Germany and the totalitarian communist states. It was on us, each of us. And so 
I thought, well, then the thing to do about that is to do whatever you can to strengthen individuals and to make them more, more like appropriate moral agents. Not rights, not the individual rights, but the individual responsibility. You know, I mentioned earlier that the tendency of the audience is to go silent when I talk about the relationship between meaning and responsibility. And that's, well, that's a sustaining thing. It's like, look, there's all these thousands of people. And what are they starving for? A heavy moral burden. Yeah. This is right. That's right. so they're, amazing. They're it's paying like, money. Yeah. They're paying yeah. sometimes 150 well, uh, bucks a ticket. Uh, what are the best? Well, look, to I think hear someone say, it's on you. Yeah, it's like, on you. Get going. It's on you. This, yeah. is, on you. This, yeah. is, this is the reality of the backlash because for thousands of years, it was the religious community saying, you have responsibility, you have duty, you have responsibility, you have duty. And then over the last 150 years, people went, no, we're not going to do any of that stuff. You know what? Forget it. And now people are going, you know, that has some upside, but it also has an awful lot of downside. Mm -hmm. And we, none of us are theocrats in the room. I don't want a religiously oriented society where there's some king up top who's telling everybody what to do, far from it. But people are hungry for a set of eternal values. Yeah. And if they don't get those eternal values, they will find something else to fill the hole and yes. it will be anger or it will be drugs or it will be hedonism or it will be selfishness and or it will be ideology or ideology mm -hmm. and all of these things and, and I am an ideologue because my ideology is my values but it will be political ideology it will be political tribalism it will be race based stuff it will be ethnic mm -hmm. ethnocentricity mm -hmm. it will be all those things what we're doing by promoting a set of, of values that, that matter is we are allowing people to, to not only keep the chaos at bay but, but find a path amidst the chaos. Viktor Frankl says in Man's Search for Meaning that in the middle of the Holocaust, what kept certain people alive and why did certain people die? He said because if you were in the middle of the Holocaust living in the death camp, it was the people who found some sense of purpose in the death camp who actually got to live. And how can you find purpose in the most purposeless place in the history of humankind? Mm -hmm. He said it didn't matter. If human beings can find meaning, Living in, a, living in a concentration camp where people are getting gassed to death every day, then you certainly should be able to find meaning in the freest, most rich, most prosperous human society right, in the history right, of humanity. Right, right, right. Um, last week I went to Oxnard, California, which is not too far from me, about an hour drive, I guess and um, went out to see uh, Dave Rubin do some stand-up. I've been a guest on Dave's show. I have a great deal of admiration for him, uh, certainly not the least of which for, for the fact that he's constantly saying, I used to be a liberal on this, used to be a liberal on that. I just don't agree with these things anymore. So we went out and, uh, and went out there to support Dave. But here's what's interesting about it. Uh, Dave brought a, a couple guests with him for the second half of the show. And um, so uh, both of these gentlemen uh, are self-described uh, progressives, and as it turned out, the entire room of people were conservatives. There, were, there was one couple that raised their hand when asked if progressives, they were all conservatives or libertarians. And what struck me the most about this, guys, was two things. First of all, I was struck at these people who were, who were considered to be real intellectuals. I was struck at, at how both of them made opening statements that I thought were just plain obsolete, just out of date. And then I was also struck at the way they were treated by the audience uh, in this age of, of uh, burning down buildings when people disagree with you. One of them said, we are burning through resources so quickly on this planet that we need a revolution without violence, that that we have to go to game B, that, that the situation is, is uh, unsustainable. And I thought, we have more oil available to us now than we did before yes. they started drilling. And, and the, other, the other gentleman began his... Um, uh, a discussion by basically saying, 
we've had nuclear weapons since 1945, and it's a nuclear world, and it's just a miracle we haven't incinerated ourselves yet. You can't prove that nuclear weapons have kept us safe, but you can say that we didn't incinerate ourselves. The evidence is indicating that nuclear weapons are actually keeping the peace, which is what the entire idea was. They've made war, full-on, all-out, civilizational war, unwinnable. So here's the thing, Steve. Um, One of the things that's occurred to me is that there's some very, very, very smart people out there who, who are working from premises that don't seem to be um, factual. They're so deeply ingrained in the culture. They're so. They're so. We've been taking them in, you know, with the air and mother's milk yeah. now for for half a century or longer. We're running out of resources, and nuclear weapons are are are, are a time bomb that's going to destroy the species. I argue that neither one of those things appears to be the case. What is it about people who who call themselves progressive that? seems to be so limiting on their ability to progress from uh, basic concepts based on evidence. I think it goes back to that Ronald Reagan quote. He used the word liberals, which I don't like, because I love that word. I consider myself an old-school liberal. Uh, so right. we, we use progressive now, and I think that's the, the right word to use. Uh, but Reagan said that it's not that liberals are ignorant, it's that they know so much that isn't so. I've never been more proud of the red team than I've been in my life, honestly, because we had these we had these two people on stage. It was a room. It was solid conservatives. They um, they everybody listened respectfully. There was no jeering. There was no interruption. Nobody nobody stood up and said, "Hey, hey, ho, ho!" These commie bastards got to go. We didn't do any of that stuff. Uh, and and when they were finished speaking, they they got a, a round of applause, and it was brought to their attention and they both admitted it that this could not happen the other way around that this this kind of discussion with the respectful airing of views and listening in respectful quiet and, and then you know a, a round of polite applause for people who disagree with you that can't happen at berkeley berkeley is where you burn down the buildings to make sure that nobody gets to hear a different opinion. When I asked them how does it feel to be in a room full of conservatives who are treating you with dignity and respect while people of your own political persuasion run you off of campus with pitchforks and dogs, how does that make you feel emotionally? How do you feel? And, and needless to say, the reaction was, well, that, that's not what progressivism really is. <laughs> yes, it is. And I was just really quite shocked at how, at how virtually indestructible this idea that no we're progressives and 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 we're the good guys in face of all the evidence <sighs> that was bill whittle scott ott and steve green from november 22nd's right angle and you can certainly hear the disbelief and frustration in bill whittle's voice you know it made me recall remember what rand identified quote man's basic vice the source of all his evils is the act of unfocusing his mind which is not blindness, but the refusal to see. Not ignorance, but the refusal to know. Is that not exactly what these guys are dealing with? I mean, that's what I'm hearing throughout this whole and entire spectacle. But the experience that Bill Whittle related regarding the differing receptions that the left would get when attending an event hosted by the right versus a reception the right would get when speaking to the left, or even when the left speaks to the left, I mean, it's an amazing phenomenon to see how different the left and right are in this regard. It is, again, reflective of something we've encountered on this very show ever since we started. 
The left does not debate when it comes to any fundamental ideas and truths. And they can't. <laughs> when you're on the wrong side of the debate and you've only got emotion to argue with and nothing that you can actually explain reasonably to people, how, how can you win by debating? And then from the previous side of our bumper in that discussion between Jordan Peterson, Ben Shapiro, and Dave Rubin, I was very pleased to hear Peterson hit the nail on the head with a few of his comments, particularly, uh, well, the one where he said it was the abdication of individual responsibility in the final analysis that led to the horrors of Nazi Germany and the totalitarian communist states. This is absolutely true. He also said that we must strengthen individuals to make them proper moral agents to accept individual responsibility. So how do you go about becoming a proper moral agent and strengthening other individuals to do so? Well, you do it by getting them to think. And thinking requires abstraction, and abstractions are most often best expressed through stories. And noted Peterson himself, quote, stories are about abstractions. If you want to extract guidelines for proper living, he emphasizes, then it's the abstraction that's pulled out of the multiple stories. And if you don't think that abstractions are true, then you are not thinking. Absolutely, that's exactly right. You know, were it not for humanity's ability to abstract, even counting from one to five would be an impossibility because there would be no way to conceptualize a value without a concrete attached to it. There's no such thing as a five or a 10 or a 22 hanging out there floating in the space. That's a completely abstract concept. Stories are also a substitute for direct experience experiences that are too numerous for any one person to go through, so we relate to other people's experiences through stories. And they don't have to be true stories. Because if humans did not have the ability to abstract, stories would have no interest or value to us at all. Now you can abstract truths or falsehoods from all kinds of stories, be they Star Trek episodes or be they a history book. And here's a little interesting observation to leave you with, a comment I ran across by Ayn Rand on literature. Quote, The most important principle of the aesthetics of literature was formulated by Aristotle, who said that fiction is of greater philosophical importance than history, because history, quote, represents things as they are, while fiction represents them as they might be and ought to be, end quote. And finally, Rand notes that reason is the most selfish human faculty. It has to be used in and by a man's own mind, and its product, truth, makes him inflexible, intransigent, impervious to the power of any pack or any ruler. Deprived of the ability to reason, man becomes a docile, pliant, impotent chunk of clay to be shaped into any subhuman form and used for any purpose by anyone who wants to bother. There has never been a philosophy, a theory or doctrine that attacked reason which did not also preach submission to the power of some authority. Philosophically, most men do not understand this issue to this day." End quote. And helping to bring that understanding to more and more people each and every week is our mission here at Just Right. So be sure to join us again next week when we will continue our journey in the right direction. And until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right. And above all, be right back here. We'll see you then. Fade it.
into color and color into black and white under the bedclothes everything will be alright I'm so stupid I burned down my insurance company for the insurance money <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>